Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm your Dana Osban. I'm here with my friend, and I guess Chavruta at this point, and Gordon. Uh, and today we'll be discussing Brachos Daf Gimel. You know, they say, and by they, I mean Rav Uri Brilliant, who was just profiled in the Makori Shon magazine called Motzah in Israel, and who has a powerful Daf Yomi program of his own at Sinai, S-I-N-A-I dot org dot I-L, he says that Dav Gimel is the hardest to learn. I will give you one word. Why? Because for Dav Bet, I mean, I'm translating here. For Dav Bet, you come with tremendous excitement. How fun. We're starting to learn Dav Yomi. In another seven years, we're going to make a seum. And then it's not so simple. You know, you, you learn the details. And he gives the examples of the details of Dav Bet Amud Aleph and Dav Bet Amud Bet. It says, until you get to Duff Gimel, and how excited are you really? It's too early in the daytime. It's too late in the daytime. It's cold. It's Maybe we'll do it tomorrow, right? So as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to begin by acknowledging that we made it here today and that you have to. Welcome. Thank you. And shkoyach. Yep. I agree with you. I think doing the Duff Gimel yesterday was a lot of excitement. Today, I'm like, this is real. <laughs> right. Seriously. So, to get to the point, the Gemara gets caught up in some math, dividing the hours or the watches, really, of the night into four four parts of three hours each, or maybe it's three parts of four hours each. That is, the entirety of the dark time is divided into 12 equal portions that are not necessarily, or rather rarely, exactly 60 minutes on our modern clocks. And here we have the famous Sha'od Zmaniot. What interests me, however, is the divisions of the night are marked not by this math, but by sounds. The Gemara says, There's three watches, three apportionments of the night, and that is the night. And I'm skipping a drop, but it says, So in each of these watches, God sits and roars like a lion. Then there's a verse that supports the claim that God roars like a lion. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. But first, the Gemara explains or demonstrates or proves that the night is divided into three. Count them three watches. It's got a proof for that. In the first watch, a donkey brays. The second one is demarcated by dogs barking. A, the third is, is marked by a baby nursing from his mother or a woman whispering with her husband. When a donkey brays, that seems to be what we would now call nighttime. It seems to be a natural marking of the natural time of night. Is a donkey waking his master? How can it be consistently a third of the night? But nature does work like that sometimes. So I looked it up. And here I'm quoting from... The braying of donkeys is a distinct sound, recognizable by anyone who's heard the characteristic hee-haw even once. The sound is unique among the equids because donkeys have an ability that horses and zebras lack. They can vocalize while they're breathing in as well as while they're breathing out. So I don't know if the donkey's braying at a certain time is as reliable as the Gemara suggests. I'll accept it, though. That when a donkey brays, it is a recognizable sound. Everyone knows that it's a donkey that's braying. And if you woke up to it in the night, you wouldn't think it was a lion, for example, or a dog, which is the next mishmeret sound. 
The dogs barking, while I hear those, parts of Israel, including parts of cities, when they're near unpopulated areas, and I live in such a place, will hear jackals or coyotes or wild dogs. They're all cousins, after all, in the wee hours. So that's then the marking of not the nighttime, like the, the productive nighttime or the early sleeping time, but the wee hours of the night. But it's a nursing baby that really gave me more to think about of the watches of the night. My understanding of this nursing kiddo is that he or she is not a newborn because when they're that little, they nurse every two or three hours with utter disregard for night and day. But after those first few days or weeks or months, depending on the child, the night becomes the night and that baby's first stirring is likely before dawn, but also the first noise, so to speak, in the house for many hours. That's what struck me about these sounds in the night. The assumption is that the house is quiet. All through the house, no one is stirring. Presumably everyone is sleeping. But if not, they can tell the passage of time by means of the natural sounds that occur every night. The quiet is reliable. And so, says the Gemara, are these sounds. In case I haven't been clear, changes in light would not have the same impact. My son likes to talk about the blue night and the black night, a distinction he learned in an Israeli gun. And he's right, in the dead of night, it's much darker. But if you're in the quiet of your sleeping house, you won't see that shift in color. You will hear the donkey's bray, the dog's bark, the baby reaching to nurse. Now quickly, because I see that my time is nearly up, about that lion. What interests me are two main things. First of all, God roars like a lion. What's that about? God, the infinite, the incorporeal is what? So the Gemara continues and explains, he's roaring like an upset lion, mourning the fact that he needed to destroy his Beit HaMikdash. But the thing is that a roaring lion already has a place in rabbinic discussion. And you all may know it well. It's even a song. You should rise in the morning with oomph, like a lion. But it's not as though the Gemara doesn't know that lion metaphor. It's, it is made on this same daf. Namely, Rabbi Zeir Amar, Ad chatzot alayla minamneim kasus, mikan It's talking about David HaMelech and the divisions of his night. And it becomes the morning mantra of the Shulchan Arach. His Gaber Kari, get up like a lion. But that's not all. This one daf has another lion. It's still talking about David HaMelech and his sleepless nights. This time his advisors come in to speak to him in the morning. And they explain to him that the populace is suffering. David does the moral equivalent of Marie Antoinette's famous let them eat cake. He says, yes, everyone should have a Parnassah. And his, his advisors respond, or is it an admonishment? A single handful of food is not going to feed a lion. So, three lions, an apparent measuring stick of plenty or poverty, King David rising in the morning with vigor, and God in his pain over the destroyed Beit HaMikdash. As will surely happen often, this merits more thinking about than we're going to give it now. Though I think, Yordana, you had something more to say about that anthropomorphism. Well, yeah, but before I get to that, I do want to say, now that I reflect on what you're saying, and it's interesting to see how like we prep this, but as you're speaking more and new ideas come into my head. So I have experienced two out of the three sounds uh, for the Mishmarot. So the first one is, uh, I was actually once with my brother in the Golan, and I did hear that dog <laughs> in the middle of the night. And my it's husband really and I were in bed and we heard this dog like barking the entire night. <laughs> And we found out later that there was actually like a rabid dog on their Moshav that they actually had to go after. But it was really like dogs barking in the middle of the night. Um, And in general, when you do go to visit there, there are a lot of dogs. You do hear them during the night. So I think that is the middle of the night one. And 
I don't know which kid it was that I had, but maybe my first or second. And I do remember wake, you know, having that stirring, being woken up, you know, at that 5 a.m. feeding. And very often the babies do go back to sleep afterwards, but really thinking about, oh, this is what the Gamar is talking about, is that it's this period of time, you know, where everything is quiet. And instead of sort of like light or dawn waking you up, because it's actually, you know, just a little bit before that, it's that time of when, you know, the first stirring in the house happens. Um, and whether that is actually the Gamar gives two descriptions, right? The baby nursing or husband and wife speaking to each other. Um, right. I think it really evokes something very, very beautiful, um, you know, sort of about how people's days tend to start and the sounds yes. that accompany them. Um, but what I was really intrigued by with this discussion of how we divide the day, the nighttime, excuse me, you know, is it, is it three, is it four? is this is really a halachic sort of almost mathematical discussion, but it's infused with something of agadita, right? What's agadita? For those of you who maybe um, this is your first time trying to learn Gemara and we're thrilled to be on that adventure and journey with you. Um, so agadita are sort of the non-halachic portions of the Gemara. They tend to be the stories um, and very often there are many Roshonim uh, those are the medieval commentators who sort of sometimes skip over that part when they write their commentator on, uh, commentary on the Gemara, um, but sometimes they're actually the most interesting parts of the Gemara, I would argue. Um, and so the first thing I'm struck by is sort of using uh, sort of an element of an agadita, the idea that God is roaring um, as a way to mark, in Shemaim at least, what is happening, what happens in the heavens over the course of the night. I don't think the Gemara is saying that we actually hear that roar, but that's how it happens. Oh, I didn't that. Right. right, right. And it's sort of parallel to the noises that we hear here on earth, here in the human realm. Um, so I guess that segues into what I was interested in, um, in this stuff, which is that we actually get our first part of Agadita in Brachot. And we'll see as we go through Brachot, Brachot actually has the most amount of Agadita of any uh, Masachat of Gemara. And we're introduced to it with uh, Brisa, Tana, Amar Rabbi Yossi, Kama Chad Hayiti Mahalech Baderach, the Nichnasti Lechorva Achad Mikorbot Yerushalayim Lechit Palel. So we're quoting a Brisa here, and it's Rabbi Yossi. So one of the things I want to do during uh, this uh, talking Talmud is to think a little bit about who the people are who we quote in uh, the uh, Mishnah and the Gemara. So this is Rabbi Yossi ben Chalakta. He's uh, an important student of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, one of his students is Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And I guess if there's some interest and people want to write into us, maybe we should do a couple of series of like backgrounds or, uh, you know, sort of timelines, history of who the Tanayim and Amorayim are, where do they all fit in. He was born in Sipori, which is actually one of the most important cities of the Mishnah. Um, but his family had some Babylonian uh, roots, which is something that's interesting about him. And he's actually featured very prominently um, in many of the agaditas that we see um, in the. So one of the things that I am uh, struck by here is just the concept of agadita itself and what happens here. So Rabbi Yossi describes at one time he was walking on the road, he's traveling somewhere, and he goes inside to a horba, right, into a ruined building. Uh, one of the ruined buildings of Yerushalayim. And what happens to him? An Eliyahu Hanavi comes and watches him uh, while he um, davens 
in this korba. And I'm not going to go through uh, the entire discussion they have. I encourage everybody to look on the page and look at that. But I guess these are a couple of questions I have for our listeners and for you, Anne, as well. Um, what do we think about, for, first of all, the fact that the first Agadita, and even uh, when, uh, you know, really deals with the Chorban. The Chorban is something that seems to be very, very present in uh, the lives of the Tanaim and in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, which I think is really interesting. Uh, that he's, the first depiction we have of him is that he's in one of the Chorvot Yerushalayim. It's not that he's in a random, you know, uh, uh, I guess we would call it, you know, a, uh, a abandoned, destroyed building, but it's one of many that he could have obviously walked into um, to Davin. Um, and the second is, what do we make of this that he spoke with Eliyahu? Uh, do we believe that these are true stories, that this was actually a real encounter? Um, it's not something that I'm fully prepared to share now, and maybe I will over the next seven and a half years, but I actually do have a family member who uh, believed that they uh, actually, Eliyahu appeared to them in multiple dreams to give them a particular message. Um, so I don't know, maybe these things do happen, and it's just really a question of being open to that as an idea. Or are these really just sort of metaphors um, or, or some type of story that is supposed to get us thinking. Um, and as we continue to talk Talmud over the next uh, days, weeks, months, years, um, I hope this is one of the things that we'll explore together is what is really the purpose of Agadita? And are these stories that we believe happen? Is it a, a literary uh, method? Um, and I'm looking forward to exploring some of those things with you. So I think the question probably can be asked each time and may have different answers each time. But one thing I think is valuable, at least when I come to the study of Gemara, when I come to the study of Halacha, is to accept Chazal on their own terms. Meaning, maybe it's all metaphorical, and we should figure out that what they really mean is that it's metaphorical, and they're trying, we should get to the nimshal, we should get to the allegory. But in the meantime, they're presenting it, you know, they're, they're perfectly capable of talking about symbolism and do. So if they're presenting it as a thing that happened, Maybe it wasn't a thing that happened. Maybe there's no such thing. You know, maybe that line, there's this great line about when the Rambam said that there are no shadim, poof, they all disappeared. But the this question of did they exist or did they not exist, I think it's a very important question. And on the other hand, kind of irrelevant in our learning of Chazal, as I say, in their own terms, where they clearly are presenting it as as real, as something that that did in fact happen. Uh, I totally agree with you. And I think that's also an important point when we see some of the um, history that's recorded. Um, are those, is it supposed to be presented as historical record, as historical fact? Or is it more that we're supposed to think about this is what Chazal wants you to learn about history, that it's more that there's a value um, in their telling of history as opposed to being a record of historical fact. And so I think those are the bigger ideas that we're going to be thinking about and continue to discuss. So with that, I think our time is up. Um, it's interesting to see how we fill the time um, in what we hope will be sort of a 10 to 15 minute daily podcast. And I guess I will conclude with uh, thank you for talking Talmud with us. And until tomorrow's stuff. Wait, wait. Yes. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Now I say that, and I realize, because I've heard from many of you, that subscribing is not yet the easiest thing to do. We are still working at the tech. 
When we have very clear subscription options, we will be sure to let you know that everything is now updated. But some of you are getting podcasts at places where you can subscribe. If you are, please do. Beyond that, we will continue to share the links at least until we know a little bit better what we're doing. We thank you for joining us in this learning curve. And until tomorrow, yes, go and learn.